You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Hey there, Modern West fans. Have we got a treat for you. If you've been listening to our ghost towning series and craving even more insight into why small town life is so valuable to us as Americans, then you've come to the right place. Let me introduce you to Reframing Rural. It's hosted by Megan Torgerson, and each episode she brings you voices of people that we just don't get to hear from nearly enough in the mainstream. Just like in Ghost Towning, Megan's first season takes us to the place where she grew up to ask hard questions about the past and the future of her beloved homeland. We're going to hear episode three, where we meet Eddie Henches, a descendant of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, who talks about the challenges of teaching high school history. Here we go. It's Reframing Rural. The reason we learn and study history is because it informs us who we are and why we are the way we are. This is Reframing Rural, the original podcast series that elevates unexplored stories from rural America. I'm the founder and producer, Megan Torgerson, and this episode features Eddie Henches, an impassioned educator who embraces a multicultural and decolonial approach to teaching U.S. history. Eddie is a descendant of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa in Belcourt, North Dakota, and he grew up on the Fort Peck, Sioux, and Assiniboine Reservation, which spans four counties across northeastern Montana. Eddie may not be a famous public scholar yet, but listening back to our conversation was like hearing an interview with a fresh air guest on NPR or one of my favorite podcasts, On Being with Krista Tippett. Eddie and I went to high school together in Williston, North Dakota, and while it had been nearly 10 years since we last caught up, by the end of our conversation, it was as if no time had passed since we were getting into trouble for chatting on the choir risers in Mr. Parker's music class. I get really tangential, thank goodness that you have editing (laughs) software. So back to Williston, let's hear a bit about Eddie's journey moving from Wolf Point, Montana, to Williston, North Dakota, which is the major center of commerce for the Mondack region, and since we graduated, the epicenter of the Bakken oil boom. Williston didn't seem totally different. The difference was is how I was perceived. I am a descendant of Turtle Mountain, but Wolf Point, Montana is a Sioux and Assiniboine reservation. So like Chippewa is a different type of native. I wasn't treated like an Indian up there. 
And I have, like, a darker complexion, but I also have my dad's side of the family, and so I have very, like, kind of wavy or curly dark hair. So -hmm. I don't necessarily look super native, which is, you know, that looking native is a whole other thing to get into, especially different tribes have different ideas of what that means. So, like, I wasn't sewer Assiniboine up there. I was just always kind of thought of myself as one of the white kids. You know, I didn't exclusively hang out with white kids or anything like that, but Mm -hmm. that's just how I pictured myself. And then I moved to Williston in fifth grade, and that's when I started, like, you know, people, like, calling me dirty Indian and, like, making jokes about that. And it was really perplexing that I would move 100 miles away, and there I wasn't even really, like, traditionally Native American or anything, and now I was just some stereotype, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and... some of it was tongue-in-cheek, but then there was also times, this was later on in high school, where a kid was at a party, and somebody called me from the party, and there was a kid behind there, and they're like, who is it? And they're like, oh, it's Eddie. And he started yelling Prairie N-word, you know, like, oh my God. yeah, repeatedly. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, why is this? And I don't know if it was just to provoke me, but I was definitely treated very differently there. Mm. So I became like this token Native American friend. And I know quite a bit about the res, and I've been to lots of different reservations, but it was a stark difference in how I was perceived by other people. You know, you just think of yourself as Megan or Eddie, especially in junior high years. Those formative years, you start to think of, okay, well, I have my ego already. I understand who I am to myself. Now I try to understand myself in relation to groups. So that was very, very strange. My experience moving to Williston was quite different. I left Dagmar, Montana, the Scandinavian farming community you heard about in the first two episodes, for Williston, North Dakota when I was 15 years old to attend a larger high school that afforded me more opportunities. At the time, Williston was also largely populated by descendants of Northern European homesteaders, but what set it apart from Dagmar was its population. For some perspective, for most of junior high, I was the only girl in my class among three boys. In Williston, our graduating class had 124 students. Williston has changed a lot since Eddie and I were teenagers there. The oil boom doubled the population what seemed like overnight, bringing with it men from all over the country looking to make fast cash. It was the height of the boom after Eddie finished college when he found himself back in Williston working in the oil industry. So I finished college. I didn't really have any job prospects. And I talked to my best friend, Patrick, and he said, the oil field was going on. I need good workers. You should come join my crew. You won't even have to do any of the crappy jobs. We'll start you at $19.50 an hour. You're going to make time and a half overtime. You're going to get a lot of overtime. I said, all right, I'll go do it. I built oil field drilling tools for a year in Williston during the height of the oil boom. That was uh, interesting. It was a very (laughs) strange year of my life. After a year, Eddie determined the oil field wasn't a good fit for him, but he did note that it was the most physically fit he'd ever been in his life. I literally lifted lengths of pipe that were between 90 and 220 pounds and fit them and used four-foot monkey wrenches. Whoa. But all I, all I did was work. You work, and then you blow off steam with the guys, you go drink, and then I'd go home and read. I'm glad that I did it. I made some money, which I've long since spent. But it is it is very hard living, and I'm glad to see that it's become more stable. 
because the infrastructure couldn't keep up with the oil production. And it was just, you know, Wild West. It really was. It was quite lawless. It was very dangerous. Being being a woman there, just being alive, <laughs> was it was there was a lot of unsafe people who had not great intentions. The whole mentality there was very, like, everything's disposable. Mm. The environment, people. Mm. I had a really, really hard time dealing with that. I've, I hope that that doesn't, like, trickle down into the... To the culture at large. No, I don't think so. Williston is really mellowed out. The infrastructure is caught up, and there's a lot more diversity that moved in, which I think was very yeah. good for the community in yeah. general. That was sorely needed. I agree. I agree with that. That's refreshing to like go home and see more diverse cultures at the grocery store. And um, absolutely, and just like some of the best Mexican food now, and like nice. I can absolutely get behind bringing that in, and that's that's yeah. good to build a healthy community. And even if it was a PR stunt, all that money that got donated from giant oil companies to like community theater and mm. playgrounds and all those public goods, even if it was just a photo op, that was good, and that yeah. needed to happen. We could be sad about it or angry about it as much as we want, but a lot of people there are very, very thankful for it. When Eddie's stint working on the Williston Basin was over, he packed up his truck and explored around Montana. While visiting family on the reservation in Wolf Point, he found out the town's high school history teacher left halfway through the year. The school was looking for a sub, and the timing was serendipitous. He took the job, and through Eddie, his students rediscovered American history through the eyes of indigenous peoples. I found myself as a teacher in Wolf Point, Montana. I really kind of fell into it, and I did that for the rest of that year, and I did two more years teaching there. With a population of 2,700, 50% of whom are Native American, Wolf Point is the largest town on the Fort Peck Reservation. Wolf Point was recently the subject of an Associated Press story because of their annual wild horse stampede. That's the oldest professional rodeo in Montana, that despite a tribal vote against going ahead with the rodeo this year, was hosted on the reservation in early July. COVID-19 has disproportionately affected Native American communities. According to the AP article, Native Americans make up 37% of Montana's COVID deaths, while they are only 7% of the population. Both of these figures are devastating. The recent deaths and the genocide of indigenous peoples that now makes them reflective of less than 10% of Montana's population. So when Eddie walked into the Wolf Point High School history classroom, willing to talk about this history, you can imagine how excited his students were. Just a heads up, the next part of this conversation may not be suitable for young children. Well, a lot of kids very distinctly do not like history because it is white people's history. My first lesson, I teach a lesson about Christopher Columbus, and I get into, okay, so he discovered America, blah, 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 and they're like, he didn't discover it. You know, everybody is on that page now. Yeah, cool. He did not, which is so <laughs> cool to see. Yeah. Because that's different than what we were taught, just the tone and the words used and dumb stories and whatever. And a lot of kids are, like, not very pleased about Columbus on the reservations. Some are definitely like, yeah, of course he didn't discover us. Perfect. Why do we tell these stories about history? Well, I don't know. You tell them to little kids, and we have a discussion on that, and we talk about, okay, well, what did Columbus actually do? Like, well, he came over, and yeah, what was Columbus doing over here? What Columbus was doing is taking over Native American populations and shipping them back as slaves. He was using them to harvest gold dust, and he would cut off their hands. Columbus and a lot of his lieutenants would just rape Native American women 
and kill them. So, like, he was doing all of this in the name of God. <laughs> like, and, and so I don't do it so, like, people hate Columbus, but, wow, that's kind of brutal. And that story you're not told. So doesn't it make more sense that we make nice little sing-songy lies up about Columbus? 1492 discovered the ocean blue. Everyone thought he was crazy because the world is flat. Those are lies, but they're more palatable for kids to listen to. The real story is far more brutal. And then from that, we talk about, you know, the Columbian Exchange, diseases, decimating Native American populations. So right away, a lot of kids are like, whoa, okay, he's going to, like, talk about Native Americans. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. I can tell history class has changed a lot since I was a kid, even if I can't remember much to begin with. That is a year that a certain thing happened. Do you remember what that thing was? No. <laughs> One lesson Eddie does not want his students to forget has to do with the Civil War and how this moment in history helps us better understand today. Civil War was fought over slavery. Any way you slice it, all of it goes back to the institution of slavery. The economic systems are based on it. States' rights argument is based on it. So right away, I did that. I pretty much said, this is not up for debate, but it's so important to move on for you guys to understand it was about the institution of slavery. Then we go into Reconstruction. Now that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are passed, African Americans are now citizens. They need to be part of the governing body. <laughs> we consider them not property anymore. Mm -hmm. So let's get them integrated into government and all aspects of society. Then you have covert racist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan start killing and silencing people. And then Reconstruction fails. So that's why about 100 years later, you have the civil rights. We have to understand that context in everything we're doing. So that's the first part. Then I start talking about women's history. And then eventually, you know, we start talking about the American Indians and how they were mm -hmm. subjugated. As the countrywide protests also happening in our country's rural pockets have signaled this summer, we are still a long way from racial equality. That's why it's crucial to understand these cycles of history and how the pervasive institution of white supremacy functions in this country. Talking honestly about this history won Eddie the 2018 Global Educator of the Year Award from the Montana World Affairs Council. Eddie's approach has also inspired students who are struggling to engage. I can think of one student in particular who had a really, really rough family life uh, and ended up having a really bad drug problem and dropped out of school. But, like, he was always in my class. When he was in there, he was engaged. And I remember him just yelling in class, like, this is what I wanted to learn about, which is, as a teacher, you're just like, yeah. wait, I did it. Awesome. I think absolutely to be represented in history is so important by like all groups. Multiculturalism is just the way to teach history. So it makes it so much more interesting and diverse than just going through and having a boring subject. 
Could you share with me a bit about the history of the Sioux and Assiniboine tribes and the creation of the Fort Peck Reservation? This is a big question, but how the yeah. history continues to have an impact today. Originally, this area around Old Point was Assiniboine land. Assiniboine and Siouan tribes were enemies, which is interesting because a lot of different reservations, you have historical enemies grouped together. And basically, these are Plains nomadic tribes. So the origins go back like Sioux and Assiniboine, historically enemies. This happened until the Indian Wars start going on. You know, westward expansion is happening. More and more uh, homesteaders are coming out. They want the land. They don't want Native Americans in their way. They don't want buffalo in their way. They feel with manifest destiny, that is their God-given right, to go out and make something of this desolate prairie. And so they want to start farming it. And there's a whole lot of support. Civil War is over. There's a lot of investment into building of agricultural colleges and just becoming a farming powerhouse. And there's a lot of people with the Homestead Act that want all this free land to go make it a farm, and then they get it. So with all these people coming out wanting land, Native Americans are getting pushed further and further west. As these treaties are being broken, people are being mistreated, they start joining war party leaders like Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Red Cloud, etc. Native Americans are feeling more and more pressure. And you have different groups like Apache and Comanche that are down by the U.S.-Texas-Mexico border raiding and stuff. You have Chief Joseph and Nez Pierce who are making treaties with people because they see that as the only way out. And then you have war chiefs that try to like negotiate but find themselves disillusioned and decide that they're going to fight. So Custer, the famous Indian killer, dies at the Battle of Little Bighorn. It's considered overwhelming Native American victory. And after the Battle at Little Bighorn, which is by Billings, Montana, the chiefs realize, okay, we brought down the wrath of the government. There's going to be a lot more soldiers coming, and we need to find a place to hide out. So you have all these different tribes that banded under Sitting Bull. They start going past what is now the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. Assiniboine historical enemies of the Sioux, you don't think that they would want to be around there, but they have this pressure. They're going up to winter in Canada, so they're going to cross the border out of U.S. jurisdiction and spend the winter up there. So on the way there, Sitting Bull drops off a bunch of different random Sioux tribes of people who aren't going to make it or who don't want to go. So they start staying with the Assiniboines. Sitting Bull does his winter up in Canada and then comes back down and passes through the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, or the area, again, and he drops off more people. So that's why you have both Sioux and Assiniboine on that reservation. Sitting Bull took his followers to Canada in 1877. By the summer of 1881, which was 10 years after the Fort Peck Indian Agency was established, quote, the Milk River bison herd was disappearing, and with it went the ancient nomadic lifestyle of the Plains Sioux and Assiniboine. That's from the book The History of the Assiniboine and Sioux Tribes of the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, 1600 to 2012. Author Dennis J. Smith continues, Once the process of establishing permanent homes commenced, with it would come the scorched earth assault on tribal communal beliefs and practices by the dominant white society, and particularly federal Indian policy officials, missionaries, and white citizens from all orbits of society, local and community, territorial and state, and national. Known for his fearless bravery and leadership, Sitting Bull was murdered by Indian police at Standing Rock Agency in 1890. 
divested of their land and their nomadic way of life, Sioux and Assiniboine peoples live quite differently today than they did six or seven generations ago. Eddie speaks to what this looks like in northeastern Montana. It's weird seeing how Native Americans feel like foreigners in their own land. For a lot of Native Americans, even to this day, on the Fort Peck Reservation, the world was just kind of black. There was a, a world map, and there was uh, the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, and then it was all blackness, and then 300 miles away there was Billings. There's not the same sort of adventuring spirit to go around and just, you know, like when I travel, I wander. A lot of kids did not have that in my experience. While I shed light on this history of how white settlers and the U.S. government oppressed Native Americans, of how the injustices continue to reverberate across the reservation today, I also hold dear my family's history in this region. As a fifth-generation Montanan, I also feel connected to this land, and I acknowledge that my Scandinavian ancestors have been here for far fewer generations than the Assiniboine have seen on this prairie. Still, I want to acknowledge that over the past 115 years, my family continues to work incredibly hard farming the rocky, arid terrain of eastern Montana. There is a lot to unpack here, and however bumpy the road to reconciliation may be, I know in my heart that it's worth the journey. For me personally, learning more about the history of these ancestral Assiniboine lands has not only been enlightening, but it's really helped me build empathy and hope. And while this relatively recent history is full of loss and grief, I don't want that to be the only story that we hear about the area's local tribes. Eddie shared with me a bit about the spiritual connection to animals and the land that is abundant on the High Plains, as well as how his cultural traditions connect him to Wolf Point, Williston, and Belcourt, North Dakota. This is a whole other story, but there's a sleeping buffalo stone by Seiko, Montana, by the Seiko Hot Springs. It's an old landmark carved by Native Americans, and it looks like a buffalo and a calf in this giant boulder they carved into it. I'm pretty agnostic, but like I find myself, whenever I go past it, like I'll cut off a piece of my beard, give it an offering. It doesn't feel right if I don't. So those make me feel really connected to my heritage in Wolf Point and the surrounding area on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. And then I go to Williston, you know, and it, it's very different. I have different associations, more that have to do with music, going to shows, and even skateboarding around. And then I go to Turtle Mountains, and I, I guess I should say, like, I always sort of felt like a white guy, or Wachichu in Wolf Point, even though I, there's a lot of cultural traditions that are very much a part of me because of that. In Williston, I always felt kind of other. Before the diversity now, I was one of the darkest kids around, you know, like, and I'm not even very dark. But in Belcourt and stopping at the gas station in the summer, looking around, I look like every Indian in there. That was really a, a cool feeling. Eddie also feels a sense of belonging there because of his family. Big extended family over there, and I'm just kind of quiet and sitting there. And you know, this Indian lady comes over and she says, okay, who are you now? Oh, oh, I'm I'm Eddie. Who who are you? Like, who do you belong to? Like, oh, I'm Jeannie's boy. And go, oh my God, my cousin Jeannie's boy, come here. And they're like shoving fry bread. And they're like, this. And they're like, you like owls? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, take this one. And I still have this owl porcelain planter. This was within minutes of like meeting her. And she's bringing me around to everybody, introducing me. Being in Belcourt with that family is when I feel the most native. They They immediately like take you in.
and I have a big just, smile on my face. Yeah, it's, it's just, <laughs> yeah. And it's been years since I've been there, but you know, in a community gathering like that, you're just a part of it. You're thick as thieves. So I have really, really good memories of going up there and just feeling included immediately. Mm. I love your descriptions of home. Like you have sage and a boulder and owl and like so many like <laughs> beautiful geographic landscapes that like invigorate your your mm-hmm. understanding of home and. Um, I feel like that probably serves you as you're living in a city, Fargo, or like no matter where you go, you have that with you. Yeah, I think that is a really cool way to think of that, a mixture of all of these things, because I'm absolutely a product of these different people and different experiences. And maybe that's why I wanted to share that with education and stuff. Eddie and I both live in our state's largest cities. He lives in Fargo and I live in Seattle. But we both agreed that even if we live in cities right now, the rural Great Plains setting of our childhood is always a part of us. It's hard to convey to some people just the vastness, the sheer vastness. And and we grew up around that, so it seems normal. It's just massive and it's beautiful. And it's pretty well empty, and that makes some people nervous, but it's a very soothing thing as well. When I lived in Wolf Point this last time, you know, drive into the country to clear your head and just stand in a field and look around. There might be a house way down yonder or something like that, but you are in the midst of it. Just immenseness. Yeah. Do you do you miss that living in Fargo right now? I do a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To be out and feel something like that is very, like I said, I think it makes some people anxious because it can Mm -hmm. seem so oppressive, you know, like just this vastness weighing down on you. But I love it. It makes me feel very humbled. I'm sure if you close your eyes, Megan, you can just, like, think of yourself out in the field, dusk, right? Mm -hmm. just starting to get dark. What are the sounds that you hear? Crickets and the wind in the golden wheat. Yep. Almost looks like water. How the wind's blowing it and it goes back and forth. Got kind of a rustling sound. Yes. Fighting me. (laughs) A coyote yipping every once in a while. Yeah. A truck on gravel. Yeah, and so so that is part that is absolutely part of us and where we yeah. take it. I really like thinking of it that way. Yeah. Because I am absolutely some of all these parts and experiences. And that really enriches and colors the the way that I look at things, the way that I approach mm-hmm. things, the person I am, how I build relationships with others. Mhm. I love that. Is there anything that you would want people outside of the Mondak region to know about the area? Like what do you what what do you care about people knowing about this region? So in Max Ehrman's poem Desiderata, it starts with Go placidly amid the noise and haste, and don't forget what peace there may be in silence. And I think that that's a really, really good way to think about the urban rural divide with the silence and being close to nature and the strength that you have to have, the hardiness, the self-sufficiency of the country. It it takes a lot of hard work and planning to live in a rural area like that. But a lot of people get it because they've been there for so long and they've watched their family do it over and over. And I think that's just a really important thing that that could bridge the urban-rural divide 
because like you said before, there's so many talks of politics and all these divisive different things, but I think that there's a lot of grit that rural people have that urban people could really dig. And I think that there's a lot of more exposure to different things that really would benefit the rural area. Yeah. But I think that the peace and contentedness in being in such a vast, immersive landscape is really good for people in the city to see, too. You feel it thin out. You know, mm-hmm. everything stretch. And you just have to make peace with that. It just humbles you to have to slow down and take it as it goes. So with all, all of the wealth of information and diversity and access that urbanites have, that can benefit the rural area. And I think that the absolute, the slowing down of the pace and being able to process that information could really help mm. the urban population. I've never thought of it before, but like the slowing down that you need to do in rural areas is a consequence of life or death. Like if you don't slow down and take that precaution before mm-hmm. getting out into your car and like, scra- I don't know, scraping the yeah, off exactly. or whatever, you, like, yeah, you, you can't could make die. foolhardy decisions because, yeah. Yeah. That's why you have to be good to your neighbors, because in these climates, you would die without them. You need that support system. It's not just amidst a harsh prairie environment that you have to be good to your neighbors. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. No matter what, if you're urban or rural, coastal or inland, black, white or indigenous, our fates are all intertwined. The good news is we're in it together, and there is endless wisdom that we can learn from one another. Thank you to my old friend, Eddie Henches, for your generous storytelling. Thank you to Andrew Drennan for creating original music for this episode's interludes. And to our friends Dan Sadomka and Ryan Manthe for helping make the theme music. Reframing Rural was made with support from Seattle University's Arts Leadership Program and the Guest House Cultural Capital Residency. I produced and edited this episode on Salish and Kalispell Aboriginal territories. Thank you for listening. our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.